So we'll read responsibly Lord's Day 28, beginning with question and answer 75. How does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits? In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of him. With this command come these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me, and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me, and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and tastes with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? It means to accept with the believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ and in this way to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more. Through the Holy Spirit, who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so, although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and we forever live on and are governed by one spirit, as the members of our body are by one soul. Where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup? In the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This promise is repeated by Paul in these words, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And now the word of God from Matthew 26, verse 26 to 29. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God for his blessing as we consider this 
Lord, we come before you with humbled hearts, recognizing your majesty, your splendor, your holiness, especially displayed in Christ himself, in his humility, in his condescending in love down to meet us, as we heard this morning, to wash our feet and prepare a table for us to eat at. Lord, we ask that now as we study your word by your spirit, that you would illuminate our hearts and give us a fresh, new, and fuller understanding of the Lord's Supper so that through it we might see and behold Jesus by faith all the more. Uh, Strengthen our faith, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight I've entitled our lesson, The Biblical Theology of Eating with God. And so the first question is, what is biblical theology? Now that phrase, it doesn't mean teaching that is from the Bible. Uh, Biblical theology naturally is from the Bible. It is biblical, but that's not what we are talking about when we use the phrase biblical theology. Now, author Nancy Guthrie says that by the phrase biblical theology, really, we're talking about a way of understanding and approaching the Bible that recognizes it actually is telling one cohesive story about what God is doing in the world through Christ. Biblical theology, she says, is about tracing particular themes that develop early on in the story of the Bible, from creation all the way to consummation. So from the beginning to the end, tracing those themes of that story, such as the theme of kingdom or the theme of sacrifice or feasting or temple. And so that's a really good definition for biblical theology. Uh, Now, why are we talking about biblical theology here tonight in relation to the Lord's Supper? Well, When we trace that theme of eating with God throughout the Bible, from the beginning to the end, we end up with a bigger and fuller picture of the Lord's Supper. And since, as we know and believe, the Lord's Supper is a picture of Jesus, it is a visible word showing us who Jesus is, at the end of this study, we will end up with a bigger and better understanding of Jesus himself. And ultimately, that's what we need to understand and comprehend Jesus all the more. Now, to get this fuller picture of the Lord's Supper and Jesus through it, we will trace six meals with God in the Old Testament, uh, all the way back in the Garden of Eden and all the way forward to the wedding feast with the Lamb and his bride, the church. I want you to think of these six points, these six meals as kind of streams from the Old Testament that are converging together into one river that is the Lord's Supper. They're coming together and giving a fuller understanding of what the Lord's Supper is and what Jesus is giving us through it for our souls to strengthen our faith. And so we'll begin with that first rivulet, that first stream, the garden meal in Eden, the garden meal. In the beginning, humanity lived with God in Eden. The garden of peace, God's shalom, where humanity lived in peaceful harmony with creator God and all other parts of creation. And God was there in the garden as the perfect host, the host serving mankind with an abundance of food to feast upon in his presence, in his home, his abode. And there was sweet communion between God and man. 
And in the very middle of that garden, we're told that there stood the tree of life, the tree of life. It was a symbol of something even better, a sharing in the communication of God's immortality, his indestructible life to humans, God's gift of eternal life. Now, how did that symbol work, this tree of life? Well, think of this. When Adam and Eve were there in the garden and they looked at that tree of life and saw its strong roots, its stable trunk, its vibrant green leaves and enriching fruit, they saw by faith the strong, stable, vibrant and enriching life that God was promising to them through it. It was the only tree in the garden there of Eden that offered a quality of life that was truly distinct and better than all the other trees. And if Adam had obeyed God, he would have been granted the right, the privilege to eat of that tree of life, to live forever in blessed communion with God. But instead, instead of waiting patiently to feast with God from the tree of life, Adam and Eve chose a fast food meal there at the forbidden tree that quickly led to the death of their souls and the destruction that now encompasses all of earth. As a result of that meal, the communion with God was broken, right? Humanity was estranged from God. Peace was gone and enmity filled the void. Think of this. We only sit down to eat a meal with people that we have peace with. You don't sit down and eat a meal with your enemies. And Genesis 3, after the fall, says that humanity was banished from the Garden of Eden. Why? Lest we eat of the tree of life. So God banned humanity from returning to that table, so to speak, there in the Garden of Eden. And Adam, why? Because Adam rejected God's free and abundant generosity to him. Now, have you ever seen the sign in a window of a restaurant that says, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone? You've probably all seen that. Well, according to the Duke's undergraduate law magazine, they say across the nation, businesses display and enforce their right to refuse service. Whether a customer is causing a nuisance or is dressed inappropriately, the business could withhold its services without legal repercussions. So when God kicked out Adam and Eve out of the garden, he was declaring his right and his obligation to refuse service to sinners. The Holy One banned humanity from his presence and the tree of life because of sin. Now, now, however, because of Jesus, through Jesus, we have peace with God. He is that last and better Adam. And through his obedience all the way till death on the cross in love for us, he forgave us. He forgave us. How? Well, Jesus chose to be banished and refused service by the Father there, dying on the cross in our place in order to forgive us, in order to draw us in, in order to wash us clean and serve us with eternal life again, in order to give us access back to the table, in order to restore access back to the tree of life for us. And that's why the tree of life reappears. Where? The very end of the Bible in Revelation 22. Listen to how John sees our future. He says this, 
Then the angels showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now in examination and exposition of that text, the Reformed scholastic Francis Turretin writes this. He says, Christ is the true tree of life because no one except Jesus is the author of eternal life. No one except Christ is in the midst of paradise. And so even now, Christ is in the midst of the church to be near all and diffuse his vivifying power among all. Beautiful. Now that same eternal life, think of this, that same eternal life that was visibly represented to Adam and Eve by the tree of life in the Garden of Eden is now visibly represented and portrayed for us through the bread of life in the Lord's Supper. Both signs point to the need of life beyond ordinary food, beyond ordinary fruit. We depend upon the life-giving God himself, both now and forevermore. And Christ himself is that life for us. And in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Jesus is giving us himself, his very own life, saying, this is my body given for you. And so we should approach the Lord's Supper trusting that through it, Christ wants to, as we read in the Heidelberg Catechism, nourish and refresh our souls for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. So that's the first stream, the, the meal in the Garden of Eden. Now, the second one is the Passover meal. So the climax of the Exodus story where God redeemed his people out of Egypt is the Passover meal. And in the death of the lambs that night, God reminds us that by death, now, salvation is only by the death of a sacrifice in the place of us. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, without justice. And so God's people of old, they were called to celebrate the Passover meal each year in remembrance of that redemption, remembering how God had delivered them. And by celebrating the Passover meal, they celebrated their freedom that God had granted for them and every blessing. And when they ate the cooked lamb and the unleavened bread, they remembered the cost of their freedom. The cost of each and every blessing that God had given them was the blood of those lambs on that night. When the angel of the Lord passed through Egypt and spared them, passed over them, because the blood was already shed. Now, when Jesus was baptized in the New Testament, John, what did he say of him? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So God's only begotten son, Jesus, laid down his life and shed his blood as the true Passover lamb in order to give us freedom from sin and death. And so we owe our eternal life to Jesus and him alone. His blood was the cost of our freedom and every blessing that we now receive by faith in Christ for all of eternity going forward. And also through his bloody death, through the bloody death of Jesus, we have the promise of safe passage through God's judgment, which is coming. It is coming. He's returning. And as surely as the Israelites walked safely through the dry ground, through the Red Sea, with the waters parted there, so too we will surely walk safely through God's coming judgment because we have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. 
the Lamb of God has freed us and we are bound now for the promised land, the new creation in Christ. And when Jesus, as we read in Matthew, instituted his supper, this Lord's Supper that we celebrate each week, it was during the Passover festival. And that was not an accident. He was declaring himself to be that Passover lamb, the Lamb of God. Therefore, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are taking into our souls, into our hearts, the greater and truer Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And we are celebrating our freedom that we have in him unto eternal life, which is why Paul says gloriously in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 to 8, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Let us celebrate the festival. So that's the second meal, that Passover meal. Now the third one, the meal on Mount Sinai. So after sealing the covenant between God and his people Israel, after redeeming them from Egypt, after sealing that covenant with bloody sacrifices, God invited the elders of Israel to go up on Mount Sinai to eat with him. It's a fascinating story. And we hear it in Exodus 24, verse 8 to 11, where it says, Moses then took the blood of the sacrifices, sprinkled it on the people. Just imagine that, sprinkling it upon you. The blood of the sacrifices. And he said this, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel then went up and saw the God of Israel. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israel. They saw God and they ate and drank. They ate and drank with God in his presence. And what was that meal all about? Well, sharing a meal with another person, especially a king, was the ancient way of ratifying the promises of a legal agreement, a covenant. It was a way of sealing that covenant. In a sense, think of this, the meal sealed the deal of peace. So back on Mount Sinai, God was sealing the deal that he made with Israel by eating with their elders. And notice they were permitted to eat and drink with God in his presence without him raising his hand against them in judgment. They had peace with him. How? Remember, the blood that was sprinkled upon them, it spoke a better word. It spoke a word of mercy, of forgiveness. And this helps us see That the Lord's Supper is God's way of sealing to us the promises of the covenant of grace that he has made. God is saying through the Lord's Supper, you are only able to eat and drink with me in my presence because of the sprinkled blood of Jesus upon you. His blood speaks a better word of forgiveness and peace. You have been washed clean by his precious blood And only now, through him, you have access into his presence through Christ. And so he says, I give you my word. Eat and drink the bread and the wine. Take Christ by faith because Jesus, think of this, hear this. Jesus is the meal that seals the deal of God's love for you. So we remember that every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what is God doing? He's reasserting and confirming his promise to forgive us all our sins and to give us eternal life in Christ. The Lord's Supper is the meal that sealed the deal of grace and peace to our hearts. So now the fourth meal, the manna meal in the wilderness. After that 
time at Mount Sinai, then the Israelites were in the wilderness, right? And in Exodus 16, we hear about the story of manna. When the Israelites were hungry in their wilderness wanderings, God gave them bread from heaven called manna, which in Hebrew literally means, what is this? (laughs) They had no idea what it was. It came from heaven. What is this? Right? It was a special provision of God for his people to sustain them in their pilgrimage wanderings. And according to Psalm 78, it is called the bread of angels. Beautiful. And our Lord Jesus, he applied this, this idea, this visual to himself in John 6, where he says there, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. So think of this as we are pilgrims in this life, in this chaotic wilderness of the world how does god sustain us as pilgrims today by giving us bread of life the bread of life jesus christ who is our life we receive him in the preaching of the gospel week in and week out but also through the bread and the wine of the lord's supper when we eat and drink the body and blood of jesus who is the true manna given from god from heaven Jesus says in John 6, 58, your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread, referring to himself, will live forever. So that's the fourth one. Now the fifth one, the bread of presence meal. In Leviticus 24, we hear instructions that God gave to Israel for the bread of presence. It was to be kept in the tabernacle and presented there in the tabernacle and the temple. And we find that the Levitical priests were to make piles of bread and, and together they were to have 12 loaves of bread there, representing all of God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel. And it is called there in that passage a memorial portion as a food offering to the Lord. And so the bread was replaced each week and eaten each week by the priests. The sacred meal in the holy place of God's dwelling symbolized God's good presence among his people, which is why it is called the bread of presence. And now through Christ, all believers are granted into that holy place of God's dwelling to eat the meal that communicates to us the very presence of Christ with us. The Holy Spirit, through the Lord's Supper, sets before us, the church, which is the new temple of God, right? The bread of Christ's presence. And now every believer is a priest anointed by the Spirit of God in Christ. And because we are priests in Christ, we have privilege and access to eat that bread of presence. The Heidelberg Catechism speaks about how Jesus is made present to us in a mysterious way, saying... Through the Holy Spirit who lives both in us and uh, both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And we forever live on and are governed by one spirit as the members of our 
body are by one soul. And so through the supper, we have the presence of Christ given to us, which is only an appetizer of what is to come, which leads us to our last one, the feast in paradise. In Matthew 26, verse 29, which we read, on the night Jesus instituted the supper, after washing his disciples' feet, he tells us that he is waiting. He is waiting to feast with us in the kingdom of God. And he says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine now until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. He's referring to that future feast that awaits us in glory by saying, until that day when I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of my Father. So Jesus, think of this. Jesus right now is like a groom a bridegroom on the eve of his wedding, eager to behold and to have and hold his bride in full and joyous communion with her, his church, right? And by the design of Jesus, this Lord's Supper is given to renew us until he comes again. And in the Lord's Supper, the bridegroom is like on that eve of his wedding night, sending his bride a sampler plate of the menu of their wedding feast. Right? Their wedding feast is coming. He's giving her a sampler plate. Come, take, receive it. This is a foretaste of what is to come, a preparatory meal for the feast that is ours in the kingdom of God. And in that sense, the Holy Spirit is renewing the spiritual taste buds of our heart so that we acquire the taste for the excellencies of who Christ is and what his kingdom is for us. That feast in paradise to celebrate the wedding of the lamb with his bride, it will be glorious, glorious, far beyond what we can even imagine now. But Isaiah describes it vividly for us in chapter 25, verse 6 to 8, and he gives us this description. And think of this, imagine this by faith that Jesus has invited you to sit at that table. You will be sitting there. You will be served by Jesus at that table. This table prepared by the Lord Almighty himself, you too will enjoy Christ in his presence on that day where Isaiah says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever the sovereign lord will wipe away the tears from all faces he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth the lord has spoken what a joy that through the lord's supper jesus is giving us a foretaste of that glorious feast when we will forever taste and see that the lord is good and dwell in his house forever and so to conclude We've seen how this theme of eating with God gives us a fuller picture of the Lord's Supper. And through the supper, we see a bigger and better picture of who Jesus is for us. The Lord's Supper is a sign of our restored access to the tree of life, Jesus himself, who is our life. The Lord's Supper is our Passover festival, the celebration of the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. The Lord's Supper is the meal that seals the deal of God's grace and peace to our hearts, like the covenant-sealing meal on Mount Sinai. The Lord's Supper is our spiritual sustenance as pilgrims in our wilderness wanderings as we receive the bread of life who came from heaven like the manna. 
And the Lord's Supper is the bread of Christ's abiding presence in the new temple of God, his church. And lastly, the Lord's Supper is that foretaste of the feast that Jesus is preparing for us in the kingdom of God. So by now, I trust that we have all received a greater and fuller understanding of the Lord's Supper. And hopefully through that, a greater appreciation and appropriation of Christ himself through it. For the strengthening of our souls with the comfort that it gives our hearts to know that he is with us. He forgives us and he is leading us to that glorious feast and all that to the exaltation of God's glorious grace. And so let us. Uh, pause now and ask God to prepare our hearts to come to this table tonight to receive Jesus by faith. Let us pray. Father God, we rejoice in the beauty of your word as we've seen these different rivulets and streams coming together from the Old Testament from the beginning to the end, forming this beautiful river of the Lord's Supper that points us and carries us to Christ himself. Lord, we ask that now you would prepare our hearts and minds to receive and appropriate to our own hearts personally Christ for us by faith. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would apply these truths into our hearts and that they would be carried with us going forward uh, for each time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.